G'day, mate. 40 here. I was just looking at the New Yorker, as we're all want to do. Early on Friday, Wednesday afternoon, headline, how 10 Middle East conflicts are converging into one big war. I mean, this is an awesome story. I mean, this is the type of thing that I got into journalism to do. The United States is enmeshed in wars among disparate players in Israel, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, and Yemen. Well, it's mainly the United States versus the Iranian-led resistance to the presence of the United States in the Middle East. And if there's no strong United States presence in the Middle East, then uh, Israel is in a difficult position. The United States has been launching attacks in the Middle East on on the Houthis. So we've got uh, confrontation there. We've got Israel preparing to invade southern Lebanon. Right, we've got uh, various NGOs saying a military response to Houthi attacks may have symbolic value for Western nations and may curb certain Houthi capabilities, but will have overall limited impact. So the United States doesn't just do things to actually accomplish good. They do things to create uh, symbols, to show that they're really on top of things, that uh, they're going to stand tough, that they're not going to allow for aggression. So. The Yemeni rebels are buoyed by popular support for siding with Hamas in Gaza. All right, this is overwhelmingly popular among Arab nations and among the Persians in Iran. And the Houthis have gained lopsided leverage over international commerce. So 15% of the world's seaborne trade passes through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. And the Houthi attacks have only accelerated since November 19. Their attacks are affecting 50 nations. And... Uh, it may, may look us, make us look tough to be going to war with the Houthis, but does it actually do anything, right? Is the world a safer place because of these attacks? So it's figuring out questions like this that uh, led me to journalism. So it was in eighth grade that I seized on, ah, this is what I want to make my mission in life. Until then, I was kind of preoccupied by running marathons. I finished five marathons when I was about uh, age 12. And then I developed knee trouble, and so I was looking for a new way to become great. And so I just uh, seized on journalism. I thought, ah, this will be awesome. I'll go out into the world, and I'll try to make sense of the world, and it will be an all-access pass. All right, I was unlike this smooth, sophisticated man that you see before you right now, back when I was 13, 14, I was a little bit socially awkward, right? I wasn't in the lowest rung in popularity, but it wasn't in the highest rung. I was kind of in, in the middle rung of popularity. And I wanted to rise in social status. And I thought, wow, nothing like an all-access pass to the world around me. That would be a great way for me to apply my skills, right? What I'm good at, I'm smart. I like to read books. I want to figure out what's going on. And it will get me out of myself and my awkward somewhat solitary habits, I'll have to go out into the world and, and mix and I'll have a pass, all right? I'll have a press pass. Go to all sorts of places and talk to all sorts of cool people and be you know, a bystander to history. I'll write the, the first draft of history so it seemed like an influential, important, uh, high-status, exciting profession. So this was 1979, 1980, when I decided, ah, I'm going to make journalism. That's going to be my thing. I'm going to dedicate my life to creating great reporting. And 
it, it would be a way that I could kind of manage my insecurities and my, my weaknesses in my social armor because with this press pass, right, this all-access pass to life, it, it would kind of act as a, a, as a shield, right? I'd be able to go out into those parts of life that I wanted to penetrate, and I'd have a legitimate reason for my penetration, right? I was sent here by the news. Yeah, my, my knees were giving me trouble looking for this new opportunity to express myself, and, and I seized on, on journalism. And uh, journalism had some advantages, all right? Journalism's mentioned in the, in the First Amendment, all right? The government shall not abridge the, the First Amendment right of the people, right, to express themselves. And so journalism is one of those rare professions that has constitutional protection, right? It's not like being an Alexander Technique teacher, right? Being an Alexander Technique teacher has no inherent uh, legal standing, all right? Lawyers have particular legal standing, doctors, right, dentists, accountants, all right, they all have professional societies and various levels of legal standing, but there's no particular special legal protection for Alexander Technique teachers. So therefore, Alexander Technique teachers tend to be fairly insecure because our work doesn't have special legal standing and the writings of our founder, F.M. Alexander, contain a great deal of, gosh, racism. And it's kind of embarrassing that the Alexander Technique was developed by a racist, all right? That, that's, that kind of lowers your, your status and makes, makes the profession a little bit awkward. So journalism has its own weird things as well, all right? So the ethos of the journalist is to be independent, to stand you know, above and beyond economic pressure and government pressure. That's kind of the goal. Just like I think in every man, there's this yearning to be free, all right? I think men resonate with, with freedom. So I, I sometimes have dreams, very positive dreams, where I'm covering the San Francisco 49ers like I used to in the mid-1980s for KHK Hill Radio. And the 49er coach, Bill Walsh, calls me into the huddle and he says, I want you to carry the ball here over the goal line. And the, the offensive line makes their blocks and I just run through and I score the touchdown in my dreams. So like running through obstacles, to freedom. I, I think that's just a part of, of being a man that we, that, that most of us just resonate with. I just love the whole idea of an open road, right? Have, have time, have, have money, have a car, and just go hit that open road. So journalism is unique in some ways, just like every profession has claims to uniqueness. But uh, I was reading a book all the news that's fit to click how metrics are transforming the work of journalists. And journalism is essentially judgment about what matters. And ju what journalists create is the primary way that we understand the wider world around us. Right? We get it from the New York Times, from network news, from radio, from magazines, from TV news. This is how we understand the world around us. And so journalistic judgment you know, informs the picture of the world that we receive. Now, we don't have to necessarily buy into the particular hero system of journalists, the same hero system that made Russiagate the single most important news story in America from 2016 to 2019, and George Floyd's death in late May of 2020, the most important story for the summer of 2020, along, along with COVID. Right? We have to buy into the particular hero system of journalism, but it's ubiquitous. It's all around us, and it's the single most influential thing that informs how we understand the, the wider world. So journalists 
are in the interpretation or information or knowledge game, right? They're not artists, right? So in artistic fields, the, the highest value is individual creativity and self-expression. But journalism's highest value is essentially judgment, right? The ability to quickly absorb, to decide between, right? To adjudicate between and publicly communicate complex and conflicting sources of information. So journalism is one of those weird cases of cultural production where its practitioners operate according to a set of normative rather than artistic commitments, right? According to a notion of right and wrong. That's why journalists come across as though they believe they have this holy mission, right? They conceive of themselves as a priestly class, right? So unlike artistic fields of cultural production, the news media pursues its autonomy to advance public interests, right? So journalists see what they're doing as essentially in the public interest, and therefore that gives them a certain level of confidence. So Dennis Prager sees that what he is doing is in God's interest, right? Dennis Prager feels that he's out there essentially talking for God. And so that imbues you with a great deal of confidence, Dennis Prager, right? Imagine that you're out there as, as God's spokesman, right? That's, that's going to give you a lot of, a lot of confidence. And journalists, right, they think they are the spokesman for the people, that they are pushing forward and advancing the public interest. Right, and that's what gives them a kind of a haughty quality, a self-righteous quality, a man on a mission quality. Yeah, most Alexander Technique teachers are female, probably about 10, 20% are Jewish. Elliot Blatt says, I alternate thinking about the Roman Empire and about George Floyd. Don't we all, my friend? Don't we all? Brett Stephens uh, hates Donald Trump. But he wrote a, a, in fact, he said he voted for Joe Biden, even though he is essentially a, a conservative in his instincts. And uh, nevertheless, he wrote a piece for the New York Times this weekend, January let's see, 11th, what is today? The 15th, so last week, the end of last week. I just read it this weekend. And the New York Times uh, readers hated it, just hated it. Do you know how many comments there are? It gives you an idea of the passion it arose. 2,945 comments. I, I don't know if you can still make a comment. The, after 100, it, I don't assume most are read. But I, I read them and they hated him. And so this is the finest piece, or one of the finest pieces I have read on the case for Trump. And it's titled The Case for Trump by Someone Who Wants Him to Lose. After reading this, don't you wonder why do you want him to lose? So there, there is only one answer, and that is he hates the man. And I had a dial. I had a number of dialogues with Brett Stephens over this, including on the New York Times Facebook page. And a while ago, he wrote a column uh, criticizing me for supporting Trump. And it's it's somewhere in the archives. Barring a political miracle, you really need to hear this piece. You should send this, really send this to every person in your life who is angry at you because you will vote for Trump if he is nominated. And say this is a New York Times columnist who hates Donald Trump. Okay, so journalists see that what they are doing is advancing not just their own interests or their employers' interests, but the public interest. Now, journalistic ethics are an interesting field because normally with professional ethics, they're an obligation to one particular party. So a doctor, his professional ethical obligations are to his patient, right? So the Hippocratic Oath, 
and other forms of medical ethics are about the obligations of a doctor to his patient. For, for journalists, uh, they have many different obligations, so it kind of significantly reduces the importance and power of journalistic ethics because journalists have ethical obligations to their employer, to the people they write about, to their sources of information, to their readers. Right? It's so disparate that it doesn't really have the same meaning as, say, for a dentist. He has ethical obligations to his patient, and a doctor has ethical obligations to his, to his patient. The, well, the, the lawyer has ethical obligations to his client. Right, the accountant has ethical obligations to his client. Very specific ethical obligations to a very specific party. That's what tends to dominate professional ethics. But when it comes to journalism, they have ethical obligations all over the map. And so it's not nearly as clear-cut as normal professional obligations. Right? So how do you weigh up your obligations to your reader versus your obligation to the topic, right, the subject of your article versus the people that you turn to for information. So Jared Bernstein, the son of Carl Bernstein, he probably called me about four times. I called him back. He wanted to tap me for information. And I, I responded, gave him like four different interviews, but he didn't feel any ethical obligation to me. So normally when a journalist contacts me for information and interviews me, right, they then follow up when their article hits print and say, oh, hey, Luke, uh, didn't have the space or wasn't able to fit you in or quoted you here. Thank you for your time. But Jared Bernstein, he, he didn't feel any ethical obligation to a source of information. All right. So it would make sense, right? A journalist may very well put his highest ethical priority to his reader or to his profession or to his employer or to advertisers, right? Or to the subjects that he's writing about or to his sources of information. There are just so many uh, ethical obligations in journalism that it just doesn't have the same specificity of uh, normal professional obligations. Now, you can get a sense of ethical journalists, all right? People who, you know, follow norms, who follow a series of obligations, right? If people write under their own name, usually the feedback that they get for, for what they produce, right? I'm standing before you, Luke Four, that's my real name, right? The feedback that I get will usually be largely sufficient to incentivize people to behave in an honorable way. Because if, if you get sued, it can be an absolute nightmare. Donald Trump seems to be after handle it, right? He's got all these civil and criminal uh, lawsuits going on against him, and he just carrying on. But for most people, it just ruins their life, right? They're unable to sleep. They, they worry. They, they lose weight. They spiral downward. Right? Many people can't handle being the subject of litigation. So if you, if you speak or you write publicly under your own name, you'll usually get sufficient, uh, sufficient information and feedback that that will keep you in control because of the consequences or another shorthand for the ethical obligations or the common sense obligations of the live streamer in particular, for example, is to think about what would your mother say, right? What would your, your family say? What would your best friend say about what you're saying and doing? Uh, what would your biggest enemy do with what you're saying online? And what would your boss say? What would an attorney say if he saw the possibility to sue you and to make money for what you're saying online? Uh, that will usually have a, a sufficient 
know, chastening and disciplining effect to keep keep one in line. So normally in artistic endeavors, right, the highest ideal is to follow your own creativity and self-expression. But in journalism, right, journalists see themselves as primarily advancing public interests. So artistic workers want aesthetic autonomy. Journalists primarily seek professional autonomy, right? The ability to practice their work according to their own values and with insulation from the wider world and the market. So why why do I often choose topics that aren't terribly sexy, right? Why aren't I choosing topics that will garner a bigger audience, right? Because I do these shows on the basis of what I think is right and true and good and important, right? I don't do them on the basis of metrics. I don't do them on the basis of what I think will go viral. I don't do them on the basis of what uh, the audience says it wants to hear, right? I come from that journalistic background and it still informs what I want to do. It's this kind of haughty, priest-like idea that I know what's in the public interest and I am going to deliver something that's in the public interest and I'm not going to be swayed by people who want me to do sexy viral topics all right I'm speaking here from the public interest remember when I was going to Sierra Community College I was in journalism class and we were going to put together a newspaper for my community college and there were women who had ideas about bringing horoscopes into the newspaper or advice columns relationship columns. And I said, well, we, we need to decide what type of newspaper we're going to produce. If we're going to produce a highbrow, serious newspaper, then we're not going to have horoscopes and advice columns. On the other hand, if we want to go lowbrow, then yeah, we can have all the advice columns and relationship columns and horoscopes that we want. And I was persuasive enough that I was elected editor of my college newspaper in addition to my high school newspaper. And then I was determined to put out a product, I guess, that primarily appealed to the professors on campus. Right? I was interested in the lofty, you know, big brain ideas. And so I was interested in interviewing professors and administrators and writing articles that these, these smart, accomplished people would be interested in. And the advisor said, we need to do more stories of interest to students. But I wasn't particularly concerned with what the public wanted. And that's how the New York Times operated. Joseph Lelyveld, the late editor-in-chief of the New York Times, recently died. And he took great pride in putting articles on the Bosnian War on the front page of the New York Times, even though he knew that overwhelmingly right, his readers were not particularly interested in that topic. So the more prestigious the journalistic outlet, right, the less concern they purport to show with regard to metrics and with regard to what the audience wants. It's kind of a strange business where the most accomplished, most prestigious members of the profession right, take you know, great pride in not caring what its audience wants to hear. Maybe you will read him, whereas you won't listen to me. This is really a good thing to do for you, for your relationships. Barring a political miracle or an act of God, it is overwhelmingly likely that Donald Trump will again be the Republican Party's nominee for president. Assuming the Democratic nominee in the fall is Joe Biden, polls show Trump with a better-than-even chance of returning to the White House next year. Lord help us. What should those of us who have consistently opposed him do? And he has. He has consistently opposed Donald Trump. You can't defeat an opponent if you refuse to understand what makes him formidable. For that alone, you should send this piece. Which, are we putting it up at uh, DennisPrager.com? You should send this piece to your son or daughter who uh, is uh, deeply angry to the point of perhaps even alienation from you. 
You can't defeat an opponent if you refuse to understand what makes him formidable. For that alone, you should send this piece to all the Democrats in your life. Too many people, especially progressives, fail to think deeply about the enduring sources of his appeal. And to do so without calling him names or disparaging his supporters, by the way, he admits he's called him names. He compared him to Mussolini. He admitted it. <laughs> or disparaging his supporters. You hear that? Are you a supporter who's been disparaged by members of your family or friends? Too many people have done this. Or attributing his resurgence to nefarious foreign actors or the unfairness of the Electoral College. It's already off to a good start. Since I will spend the coming year strenuously opposing his candidacy, let me here make the best case for Trump that I can. Begin with fundamentals. Trump got three big things right, or at least more right than wrong. Arguably the single most important geopolitical fact of the century is the mass migration of people from south to north and east to west, causing tectonic demographic, cultural, economic, and ultimately political shifts. Trump understood this from the start of his presidency, of his presidential candidacy in 2015, the same year Europe was overwhelmed by a largely uncontrolled migration from the Middle East and Africa. Yeah, so Trump has been right on the two biggest issues of our time, right? The need to control immigration and the need to change how we conduct trade. So those two big issues, Trump has been right. He's also generally been on the law enforcement side as opposed to the side of the, the rioters, right? January 6th was an exception. He signed legislation later on in his term permitting the release of criminals from prison. So certainly some exceptions, but generally speaking, Trump has been a law and order president. Okay, so aesthetic cultural work tends to be defined by the art-commerce relation. Journalism is characterized by the democracy-commerce relation, right? This is from the 2021 book, All the News That's Fit to Click, How Metrics Are Transforming the Work of Journalists. And this book makes a, a great point. You can't measure something without that having an effect on you, right? If you measure how you spend your time, right, you track how you spend your time, that will change how you spend your time, right? you will start behaving in all likelihood a more honorable and more effective direction if you track your time. If you track your spending, you will spend money more carefully. If you track your earning, right, you'll earn money more effectively, right? Whatever you track, time, money, you get more of. So tracking profoundly affects us, right? It's, it's basically... Near, near impossible to measure something without changing that thing, right? So when you, when you create metrics, all right, you elicit a response, right? When you create metrics about your own life, all right, you look at uh, the health app on your iPhone. It tells you how many steps you've been doing, how many uh, flights of stairs you've been climbing, all right? That incentivizes you and, and changes you. So... We, we understand most of the world around us from journalism, right? Music, TV, books, and journalism, these are all carriers of meaning. And journalism is about the, the most powerful cultural industry in this regard. It's, for many people, the primary sense-making practice of modernity. It's, it's through the news that we encounter politics, leading political figures, other powerful figures, right? We develop a sense of empathy or antipathy toward people in different life circumstances, we learn about and make sense of current events that are outside of our immediate observable environment. And we develop an understanding of what are the most crucial issues animating public life. 
So journalism's history in the United States is a history of a group of workers trying to become professionals, right? They want to professionalize what they're doing. And why do people want to professionalize what they're doing? Just like why do people want to live, live a religious or a traditional life? Because the world is a big oozing mess. The world's a big confusing mess. But we have a desperate need for meaning and order in our lives. And so to construct meaning, to construct order, to construct the sense that we are striving for what's heroic, right? we develop and we sanctify and we pay great attention to boundaries between things like that which is pure or clean and that which is dirty, between the heroic and the cowardly, right? between the special and the mundane, between the, the holy and the secular. All right? That's a great way, and it happens in every society that's how we largely develop meaning in our life. We make dramatic differences that uh, may otherwise just sit there. Let's have a look at the chat. Forty, bring your Julie on the show, bro. Democracy dies in darkness. How long before Prager talks about himself and his ethics? Journalists protect our democracy. Many miles on that Martha McCallum would still... Uh, yes. Uh, okay, this is a very highbrow show. All right, so the history of, of journalism, right? Journalism is a, a pretentious word, right? I, I use it because that's the word that's used to, to communicate uh, this, this profession. But I, I understand it is, it is a pretentious word. As he said, a nation without borders is not a nation at all. We must have a wall. The rule of law matters. Many of Trump's opponents refuse to see virtually unchecked migration as a problem for the West at all. The, the lines in this piece are just so true. Many of Trump's opponents refuse to see virtually unchecked migration as a problem for the West at all. I would go further. Liberals don't see it as a problem. Progressives see it as a great thing. The more the West stops being the West, the more progressives, our today's communists, like it. How a society produces, how a good society produces people like this, that's a okay, he's about to talk about ethics. Okay, so history of journalism, right? Pretentious term for reporting. All right, it's a history to try to establish itself as a profession. Why do groups want to establish themselves as professions? To distinguish themselves from competitors, to establish more prestige, influence, and income for themselves, right? Doctors do this, dentists, lawyers, and right? every profession does this. And so the history of the attempts to make a journalism profession in this country essentially attempts to develop independence from both the state and the market, which for normal journalists, these, these two entities are viewed as corrupting influences on editorial freedom and journalistic integrity. And so Orthodox Jews have all these practices to create a holy life, to distinguish between the sacred and the mundane, distinguish between Jew and Gentile, male and female, adult and child, between that which is pure and, and clean and that which is, you know, impure and disgusting. That which is mundane time, that which is sacred time, right? So, to with journalists, they have developed all sorts of norms and practices, right, such as refusing gifts, denying sources, quote, approval, establishing a wall between the editorial and the business sides of a news organization, 
right? These are all attempts to develop their own autonomy. So just like I think every man has within him this yearning to be free, journalists very much want to be free of what they view as the degrading and corrupting influence of government and of the market. But autonomy from what? What keeps journalism alive, changing, and growing is the public nature of journalists' work. So they want to be autonomous, but they have to work in a non-autonomous environment. All right. They are daily, hourly, weekly getting exposed to the disappointment and the criticism of their readers, their sources, their public, right, who may express their disapproval economically by canceling subscriptions or changing channels. So here is a key insight from a 1979 classic by a sociologist, Herbert Gans, who wrote a book, Deciding What's News, that journalists had little knowledge about the audience and they rejected feedback from it, right? But even back in the 70s, right, journalists weren't particularly interested in letters to the editor. And now online journalists despise generally speaking, comments on stories. They despise bloggers. They despise social media commentary. So it's an interesting profession that tends to despise their audience and to automatically put up blinders and and reject feedback from their audience. They have a vague image of their audience, but they pay little attention to it. They film and they write for their superiors and for themselves, assuming that what interests them will interest their audience. So Essentially, they see themselves up here, and they are going to instruct you about what's important. So back in the newspaper print era, journalists rejected audience research because it was a way of protecting their always tenuous professional status. professions Professions are exclusive groups of individuals applying abstract knowledge to particular cases. So journalists are incentivized to use highly accessible language, but that then renders their claims to specialized expertise suspect, right? Because they use words just like you and I use words. So in the absence of a structural closing mechanism that limits entry into the journalism profession, right? And without a repertoire of abstract knowledge that is unique, journalists strive constantly to create and maintain boundaries around their profession by doing things a certain way and privileging certain rationales for those actions. Just like how have Jews survived as a distinct minority living for approximately most of the last 2,600 years as a minority culture by continually contrasting the Jewish way of doing things with the non-Jewish way of doing things and within their own in-group incentivizing ah, that the Jewish way of doing things is superior. So that's the only way you maintain a strong in-group when you develop ideas about how you should do things a certain way and you should understand things a certain way, and that's what sets us apart. So for journalists, it's the opinions and assessments of other journalists rather than of outsiders that hold the most weight, and they're trying to figure out whether they've done a job well or not. Now, we've got this explosion in metrics that tell people you know, how many page views has your story received, how many people have emailed the story, and so editors often perceive these metrics as a threat to their own authority and to their own privileged position atop the newsroom hierarchy. Because what does an editor have that uh, a journalist, regular journalist doesn't? It's their own claim to superior levels of judgment, which is not objective, right? It's not immediately discernible. It's highly subjective. 
And so when you're on top for highly subjective reasons, for abstruse, abstract, largely unknowable reasons, you're going to feel highly insecure about that. So in this uh, great 1979 book, Deciding what, What's News, the author noted the indifference to audience research that he observed among journalists might well change should commercial considerations become more urgent within news organizations. So up until the 1990s, news was a highly profitable business because of a quirk of communication that made newspapers the, the best, most efficient way to place classified ads. And so up until the 1990s, news organizations typically had better than a 20% profit return every year. So it was a highly profitable business until the rise of the internet. Now, journalism as a profession is in steep decline, and there are probably half as many working journalists today as there were 20 years ago. Now, the New York Times regards itself as the most significant and the highest reputational outlet of news in the United States, possibly the world. Even though the New York Times, for example, has never much excelled at investigative journalism. And the Washington Post has done far more investigative journalism than the New York Times. The New York Times has always primarily been an editor's paper. Right? They have many layers of editors using their judicious, subjective judgment about what's important. And you succeed or fail times according to your ability to provide editors with what they want. So to excel at the metrics traffic game, journalists need a mixture of luck and skill that is elusive and difficult to reproduce. So journalists are regularly surprised by traffic. Pieces they expect to be hits often draw a smaller audience, and articles that they thought were niche could unexpectedly become popular. And so one way that uh, writers have dealt with metrics is to just keep grinding out pieces because every piece, every video you make, every blog post you make, every article you publish, right, there's always the tantalizing possibility that this could become a surprise viral hit. I mean, right now, I am at 15 live viewers on YouTube. Who would, who would have realized that I'd become such a viral hit? One of the uh, downsides of paying close attention to metrics all right, is that your mood will likely rise and fall when you see your metrics. Right, and uh, many people find this alarming. Now, all societies, right, have ideas about separation, purification, and demarcating and punishing transgression. Right, so all societies have as their main function a need to impose some kind of system on an inherently untidy experience. So it's only by exaggerating the difference between what's within the group and what's without what's clean and what's dirty, that a semblance of order is created, right? That's the anthropologist Mary Douglas writing Impurity and Danger, right? We live inherently untidy lives, but through our hero system, from our community, from our family, from our profession, we get ideas about separating what's dirty from clean, what's honorable from dishonorable, what's heroic from, from cowardly. And so we impose on untidy reality uh, an exaggerated system, to try to you know, make sense and feel like we've got a handle on a highly confusing world. How much of the New York Times and Washington Post content comes from anonymous government officials? A significant amount, but even more, far more than what comes from anonymous officials, far more comes from the pronouncements of bureaucracies. So the National Football League is a bureaucracy, right? So the regularly scheduled events 
that are bureaucratically determined, right? That's what dominates the news. That essentially is the news. So the National Football League is a bureaucracy that puts on regularly scheduled events and has rules and determines winners and losers. And various government departments issue reports. Uh, police departments issue reports. They let us know whether crime rates are supposedly rising or falling. Though how they compile those statistics are far from objective. But that is essentially what is news. Bureaucratically determined and offered at usually regular intervals. And uh, I remember when I wrote on the sex industry that uh, strippers, for example, would have contempt for their fellow strippers who would display more, who would spread more. And in the, the porn industry, the, the most beautiful women, generally speaking, put the least effort into their performances. And so journalists at the New York Times would constantly draw positive contrast between their newspaper's approach to metrics and that of other publications. So the author prefaced a question to a Times reporter by mentioning that the Washington Post had a real-time display of the paper's top-ranked stories on its newsroom wall, and the New York Times reporter was incredulous. They have that at the Washington Post? Oh, God, this is so depressing to me. So the more prestige you have in the, journalist, the, more prestige you have in the journalistic profession, the more you feel like you should be insulated from commercial and government pressures. So the New York Times perceives itself as the very apex of journalistic professionalism in the United States, and therefore they self-consciously pay less attention to metrics than posts like uh, or organizations like uh, Gawker and BuzzFeed. But even Gawker and BuzzFeed also like to distinguish how they deal with metrics. So everyone has strong incentives to try to picture themselves and their organization in a world that puts them on top and everyone else in second place. So many Gorka staffers would, re would uh, regard BuzzFeed and its editorial approach as essentially clickbait and cheap viral crap. But BuzzFeed emphatically rejects this characterization. And they published a post in 2014, why BuzzFeed doesn't do clickbait. And the editor-in-chief at the time, Ben Smith, argued that those who associate BuzzFeed with click clickbait confuse what we do with true clickbait which is a headline that baits the reader into clicking by overpromising on what the story actually delivers. By contrast, he says, BuzzFeed's headlines tend to be extremely direct. For example, 31 genius hacks for your elementary school R class is just that. So even, even at low status, low prestige outlets like uh, Gorka and BuzzFeed, they still had ways of viewing what they were doing that uh, distinguished them and made them better than everyone else, right? The world is so incredibly untidy, we can't help but develop all sorts of exaggerated ways of making our own group best and creating meaning and, and purity and her heroism from what, are, what would otherwise seem like fairly mundane tasks. So metrics confront journalists with a mixed message. If they ignore the metrics altogether, if they ignore the data, they risk being seen as foolish and as obstinate, as patronizing towards their audience and behind the digital times. Right? They are guaranteeing their professional obsolescence and facing managerial censure or even job loss. But if they rely on metrics too much, right, they corrupt their sense of professional integrity and their autonomy, and they sully their reputation. And what makes things even more challenging is there's no widely agreed upon right and wrong normative standard within the profession to how to navigate between these extremes. 
So if you go into the common spaces of the New York Times headquarters in Midtown Manhattan, displays of any kind of metrics data are conspicuously absent. So at Gawker, like vast swaths of the wall were occupied by large flat screens displaying various real-time traffic rankings of stories and writers. Going to the New York Times, their wall space is covered with framed reprints of each of the paper's Pulitzer Prize-winning stories. All right? The more prestigious the publication, all right, the more the, the journalists there are concerned about their reputation among other journalists, the less concerned they are for their reputation among the public at large. All right, let's get back to Richard Ananya here speaking with Amy Wax. That the uh, progressive woke police will come after them. Uh, so it's going to be very hard to sort of nail down these differences. But the suggestion is there. I'm sure you're well aware of the data on this. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. And I probably, I'm probably more convinced. I mean, I, pr I probably think it's even more conclusive than, than you are. You know, you, you need a theory to be a theory. And I don't think there's any other theories that explain the sort of universality um, of the differences that we, uh, you know, that we see. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I agree. I, you know, I, I do see sort of, I think the main, so what do you think that like the mainstream conservative sort of, I think the, the what my, my sort of impression is that if you talk about culture, like that really takes off with right wing people. They really do like it. Even like, you know, like free press, Barry Weiss, intellectual dark web, sort of centrist types really, really will uh, like slab onto that and they love it. They'll share it. The genetics, it really, really starts to make them uncomfortable. And I don't think it's just race. I think if you go to a racially homogenous country and you talk about class differences and you say some people, you know, the, the, the children of some classes are do better than the children of other classes because they're genetically smarter. I don't think there's many societies that acknowledge this. I don't know if there's any societies um, that really acknowledge this. Anyway. outlets, right? They've, they've very strategically used metrics on a much more limited basis to try to get their workers to do what they want. Great degree. Um, and, and so like, you know, it, it seems like it is really, really an uphill battle to just get anyone into genetic, even if we didn't have a racial, even if we didn't have these racial uh, divisions in this country, it would still be part just because people don't like it. People don't like the sort of deterministic nature of it. Yeah, no, I, I can't disagree with you. I, I absolutely can't. I mean, I, I do not know how to get people to uh, not just accept, because accept is, you know, pretty far along, but even think about this, right? To even think about, I mean, you know, the fact that we're having this conversation uh, and doing this podcast, I mean, this just marks us out as really dangerous and evil people, I think, uh, that we would, right. you know, talk about this at all. Wait, how, how long was I muted for? 
I was dropping pearls of wisdom and and it didn't even show up. That's that's sad. Okay, I, I was talking about uh, the power of, of editors and how it's their, their power is largely inscrutable. All right, so w- where did I end off? All right, editors' sense of news judgment, right, is not not exactly objective. All right, it's inscrutable, it's intuitive. Metrics have the ability to be visible and accessible to all staffers in a newsroom. Metrics have an interpretive ambiguity, so a reader, a reporter, and an editor can draw possibly contradictory conclusions from the same data. Uh, New York Times would restrict uh, reporters' access to metrics because they perceive the data as a potential threat, not just to the quality of the newspaper, but also to their own managerial authority. And one journalist says, if you think about an editor, the only thing the editor has is their judgment. So what they do is they sit and they use their judgment to decide on stories, to edit stories, and to decide what should go on the site. And uh, though New York Times editors would generally withhold systematic access to metrics for many years, they would strategically disclose particular data points to reporters when they wanted to accomplish a specific goal. Okay, big big picture, okay, the, the summary of this stream, right? The world's a big oozing mess, but to create meaning and order in our lives, we develop and we sanctify these boundaries between what we see as clean and unclean, between what we see as heroic and cowardly, to give meaning and purpose and heroism to what are otherwise fairly mundane choices. So I just read a 2023 book by Washington Post journalist Taylor Lorenz called Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. And she begins with this blog called Socialite Rank. It came out in 2006 and it would rank the top socialites in New York City. And it just created you know, a massive firestorm among various socialites who are trying to push their way up the, the rankings of this website, Socialite Rank. And eventually, about a year later, it, it was unveiled that this is not some group of top-tier socialites teaming up behind the scenes. In fact, the people behind the website weren't known at all, right? It was a website, Socialite Rank operated by two random Russian emigres named Valentin Yuhovsky and Olga Rai, right? They were not born into high society. They essentially created the blog as a social experiment. And elite society was astonished, right? They'd been brought to their knees. They'd been brought to tears. They'd been brought to depression and to frenzy and elation by two people who they would never have given the time of day, right? So these outsiders had upended the ultimate insiders and it had cost them less than a trip to the hair salon. So initially, the big news organizations had uh, contempt for the internet. And in particular, they did not see blogs as much as a threat. Right? Bloggers look like curious eccentrics, just a bunch of second-rate writers with too much time on their hand. And the old guard would consider the, the, you know, this blogging stuff just not up to the standards of the New York Times or Vanity Fair. They doubted that bloggers would ever break consequential stories without the access and talent monopolized by legacy media. But then bloggers like myself came along breaking important stories, Matt Drudge, other bloggers became unavoidable. And so Matt Drudge essentially became the most powerful force shaping news agendas because journalists from about 
1997 until well, probably 2016. We're just constantly refreshing the Drudge Report and getting you know, getting tips and, and getting a sense of what was important in the news world from this one man's blog. So then you had the rise of blogging in 2001. I started my first blog July 3, 1997, before it was ever called a blog. And then blog became word of the year in something around 2001. In 2002, we have Wired Magazine declaring the blogging revolution. Right, a paradigm shift in how people distribute and receive information. Readers increasingly doubt the authority of the Washington Post, the National Review. Right, They know that behind this grand curtain are fallible writers and editors who are no more inherently trustworthy than a lone blogger who has earned a reader's respect. And that's correct. Right, If something is true and profound and important, right, it may not matter very much whether it comes from a lone eccentric blogger or from the New York Times. So blogs offered readers everything that the legacy media couldn't. They revealed what writers really thought, and blogs enabled real-time interaction between writers and readers through comment section. And so you had the rise of the blogs. Bloggers ascended from the nosebleed seats to the front row with such alacrity that a long-held social code among editors, one that prizes position and experience above outward displays of ambition or enjoyment, has been obliterated. That's the New York Times in 2009, writing about fashion bloggers. I get a little bit more here from Amy Wax and Richard Ananya. Um, but uh, I, I just am wondering about the post-woke world and, you know, how are we going to get to a stable post-woke world in which the people who, you know, have achieved and are tested and shown to have achieved are the ones who are elevated by and large. I mean, of course, it's never perfect. The meritocracy is never perfect, but, you know, it works pretty well, more or less. Uh, take something like air traffic controllers, right? Um, there's been something written by uh, Steve Saylor about that. I guess he's taking off on a piece by Jared Taylor. Jared Taylor, who obtained all of this rather frightening data about how the federal government has thrown out the test results for air traffic controllers because too many whites and Asians do well and too few blacks and Hispanics um, pass the test. And this pattern is, of course, repeated in lots of different spheres. But for air traffic controllers, that's you know when we all really get nervous because uh, if we don't have the best air traffic controllers, as they like to say about, you know, COVID, people will die. Uh yeah, let's have a look at Twitter. James Lindsay, an academic, writes, it's time to overturn Griggs versus Duke Power. Right, that was the Supreme Court decision that ruled that any employment test that had different results for different races was illegal. Right. So it's time to overturn Griggs versus Duke Power. So that forbade the use of IQ tests. It's time to overturn Griggs versus Duke Power and the destructive DEI, so diversity, equity, inclusion, misinterpretation of the Constitution, which is based on invidious errors and lies about systemic power and inequity, which are rooted in critical theories of identity. And uh, Mike Benz, formerly known as Frame Game Radio, says, literally this one court case, not even joking, is single-handedly responsible for the entirety of corporate DEI, knock down this case, all of DEI ends in one business day, right? That's compelling, provocative overstatement. Not, not true, right? It's not going to end DEI, but it's, it's uh, incredibly compelling, right? That's why Mike Benz is just so good at how he, he frames things. So I don't know if you remember about 
10, 12 years ago, you had all these laments in the mainstream media that blogging was going to mean, mean the end of mainstream media. Well, it didn't exactly happen. So you had journalist Jonathan Rausch, who published a book on uh, the case for gay marriage. He, he writes on Andrew Sullivan's blog back in 2011. This is the blogosphere. I'm not getting paid to be here. I'm here to get incredibly famous so that I can get paid somewhere else. Well, that's not the only reason people write blogs to get famous so you can get paid to write somewhere else, right? It's just an inherent part of the human condition to want to share things that you learn or know or question with you know, other people. And blogging is just one communication mechanism, just like a cell phone or a fax machine. And so Jonathan Rauch says, the average quality of newspapers and published novels is far, far better than the average quality of blog posts and let alone comments. Yeah, that's true. But there are plenty of superb blogs. Right? This is why people pay for newspapers and novels. Right? Payment is a filter and a pretty good one. And uh, the blog is bringing in new content, is displacing better content by destroying the business model for quality. He says there are inherent problems with the blogosphere as a medium. Lack of a payment model militates against professionalism and rewards noisiness. And he says that the blogosphere is the single worst medium for sustained and grown-up reading and writing and argumentation ever invented. So Jonathan Rausch, when he wrote this, what was he, like 60 years old? Uh, yeah, so he's now 63, but he looks, looks much older than his years. Gosh. Looks so incredibly decayed. But uh, he's out absolutely outraged by the blogosphere. Like many mainstream journalists, thought it was going to be the, the end of journalism. And uh, Andrew Gelman is a professor of statistics at Columbia University. He operates a blog, andrewgelman.com. And He's got some pretty good comments back in 2011. I wonder if Jonathan Rauch's problem is he's aiming for too big of an audience. And Gilman notes, we have 5,000 subscribers here. Maybe if Jonathan Rauch was willing to settle for an audience of 5,000 rather than millions, he could be mild, moderate, judicious, think things through, and get it right. right. To be all these things and have a huge audience, that takes a huge amount of luck. If you're willing to accept a niche audience, you can be as serious as you want. I am willing to accept a niche audience. And so I can get as serious as I want here. So Jonathan Rausch writes that journalists like himself are the kind of people who punch their tickets on newspaper police beats. Where they learn quaint notions of fairness and accuracy and keeping one's opinion out of it and all that. That's kind of amusing because for the last 20 years, Jonathan Rausch has published almost nothing but his own opinions. Right? He, he posts nothing but his own opinions. He, he states he, he will do no reporting on his blog. I haven't seen any police reporting from him lately. So he doesn't actually view fairness, accuracy, and the traditions of the peace beat as valuable in and of themselves. He just sees them as opportunities to distinguish him from the lower sorts of people. Right? So ideology is incredibly flexible. Right? We will use ideology in all sorts of different directions to try to justify why we deserve good things and other people don't, why we are superior to others. So, yeah, just when you become an expert on something, your expertise becomes obsolete. It must be very frustrating. Jonathan Rauch's most recent book, Gay Marriage, Why It's Good for Gays, Good for Straits, and Good for America, 
is the sort of content you could see very well on a blog. And Jonathan Rout writes that uh, blogging in particular on the internet in general is displacing better content by destroying the business model for quality. Well, things are quite different in the academic world, right? Very few academics get paid to write journal articles, right? Academics, by and large, do not get paid to publish in academic publications, right? Academics do it for free and always have, right? Academics get paid to teach and to do research by their universities, and publications can indirectly help make us money, right? If you publish an important article, now if you get a research grant, but no part of the academic system requires the readers of academic work to, to support it, right? If every journal were to become free and online overnight, right, academic writing would proceed just as before. So this argument that paid writing is just inherently better than free writing doesn't apply in the academic world. So journalists see their calling as a holy calling, as a priestly calling, because they have their own hero system. But what makes a piece of writing or piece of audio video content journalism, hence protected by the First Amendment, is somewhat subjective. Right? Journalists, like other professionals, guard their status zealously, and they are in an awkward position because their work is essentially making judgments that are not subject to objective criteria. So they're very quick to dismiss many bloggers, for example, for the cardinal sin of not doing journalism. The primary critique that I would receive in countless journalistic profiles of my blogging career was that it was not good journalism. There might be some other goal that I'm striving for, aside from just strictly journalistic ones, it does not figure in how they view the world. So we're in 2024, and back in 1977, I noticed this when I moved here from Australia, there's an obsession with professionalism in America. And since World War II, you've got this growing movement of professionalization of education, of business, and of journalism, and of universities, all right? And so universities in particular have this interest in converting as much of the landscape as possible into fenced-off, neatly tended, carefully patrolled academic preserves, right? My, my thesis statement, the world is a big oozing mess. The world is inherently untidy. And so we look for ways of cleaning it up and we create practices and points of view and ideologies that uh, determine, you know, what is good and what is bad, what is pure and what is dirty, what is kosher and non-kosher, what is holy, what is profane. And liberals do it in their own ways, right, by encouraging the courtier morality, right, as opposed to the lord of the manor morality. So back in ancient times, Right, you had your own manor, right? You 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 know ran your your home. Your home was your castle. You had you know a little bit of the earth where your word ruled, and you could be free to pretty much say what you thought. Then, due to commercial and military constraints, right, nation states became increasingly centralized. So, knights who had won time hang out at their manor, start moving to court in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century. And to survive and to thrive at court, they have to develop skills that are very different from the ones that you need to rule your, your manor. So you have to learn to weigh everything you say. You have to consider how what I say will affect people in a, in a wide range of courtier functions. How will it affect the king? 
and the prince and the queen and their assistants and the princes and the nobles and the administrators and the, the merchants, right? You have to start learning to weigh every word. And so one difference between conservative morality and liberal left morality is the difference between Lord of the Manor morality, which is trad morality, which more coincides with conservative morality, and liberal left morality, which is courtier morality, where people learn to carefully weigh everything they say and more and more of life becomes professionalized, where you're expected to distrust your immediate inclinations and to rise above them and to essentially transmute the Protestant ethic where, where faith and orientation of your heart towards God right, is supposed to direct all of your behavior. So in the tr traditional world, there were holy spaces and unholy spaces. But with the Protestant Re Reformation, like all of the world was supposed to become a holy space where you're supposed to direct yourself towards God and develop a relationship with God that would then inform everything you do. And if you don't act in a godly way, then it shows that you are not truly saved and that your salvation is in peril and that you're not really connected with God and you're not one of the good guys. And that's similar to the modern liberal left notion where all of your speech should be disciplined. All of your words and behavior should be carefully carefully weighed up so that they you know, cause no harm and no offense to a wide diversity of people, right? It's the extension of courtier morality. So traditionalists or Orthodox Jews, right, have their way of fencing off, tending, and carefully patrolling vast parts of life to determine whether it's kosher or non-kosher, holy or profane. Liberals, the liberal left, have their own way of trying to fence off, tend, and carefully patrol much of life so that the smooth, manicured green lawn of science, for example, might replace the wild, sweet meadowgrass of common sense. So we have this steady move towards professionalism, which does not strike liberals as particularly political, but this professionalization is just another expression of liberalism's ordering impulses and monkish virtues. Right? This is courtier morality. Right? And to maintain their dominion, Liberals must discredit knowledge that originates in embodied feeling, right? Traditional loyalties, for example, to blood and soil or people who cling to guns and religion, right? This must be discredited, right? This, this non-explicit engagement with the world, this is dismissed as mindless habit and reflex. It's, it's just a bunch of lax and disorganized folkways that should be transcended by using the strategic, disengaged, buffered power of reason to elevate ourselves into courtier morality. So conservatism, by contrast, is a dissident culture, and it comes from a place of weakness. Right? The elites of the dissident culture cannot begin to match in numbers or influence those who occupy the commanding heights of the dominant culture, the professors, the journalists, the TV and movie producers, and various cultural entrepreneurs, right? the liberal left, dominates almost all of our institutions. It holds the high ground in culture. So even mainstream religion has fallen under the dominant liberal left sway. Right? Churches, mainline churches, pride themselves on being cosmopolitan, sophisticated, undogmatic, uncensorious. They offer very little resistance to the prevailing culture. They want to emphasize there's no conflict between religion and science because they're essentially surrendering to science. Uh, I think it can be predicted that people will die. And it's sort of an accident that's waiting to happen. Um, so 
you know, how do we get to the point? Let's have a very kind of low bar here. How do we get to the point where we convince the government to give up on diversity as an independent goal for air traffic controllers? And, you know, you, you cite the NBA. In the NBA, there isn't a big push to get more whites or more Asians or more Jews or whatever. Uh, people don't seem to care. Can we accomplish that for air traffic controllers? How do we do that? Yeah. I mean, I think most of our history, I mean, even after the civil rights era, it really, it sort of waxes and wanes, right? It's sort of, I think of the 1980s. So the more prestigious the the journalistic outlet, right, the more it resembles courtier morality. And you will see in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, uh, live streamers are held accountable for just throwaway remarks. Uh, Nick Fuentes was crucified repeatedly for being a Holocaust denier over one, one joke about uh, cookies, which you could see as a, a joke of very poor taste. But the courtier morality dominates the more prestigious you get in society. So whether it's the Ford Foundation, the New York Times, or Hollywood, right? these are all just the latest iterations of the unnatural life of court society, right? this new life of high self-consciousness and other directedness, this notion that we can lead strategic, you know, rationally directed uh, buffered existences that stand in quite sharp contrast to people who cry when they hear the Star Spangled Banner, right? When those who just surrender to the excitement of their hearts unhindered by the cold power of reason, right? When you see someone crying for the Star Spangled Banner, right? You're not dealing with a member of the liberal left elite, right? People in the liberal left elite have contempt for those who are so simple that they will cry at the singing of the Star Spangled Banner. So it used to be our dominant establishment was the WASP establishment. That was our nation's cultural high end. Now we're ruled by porgies, all right, post-religious globalist intellectuals. And they see themselves as separated by a cultural Grand Canyon from the nation at large. You've got Harvard, New York Times, Boston Symphony, science, technology, iPhones on one side, and then you've got guns, churches and NASCAR on the other. So when Donald Trump was elected in 2016, all right, this post-religious globalist intellectuals were just absolutely shocked because nobody they knew could even conceive of voting for Donald Trump. Laura Ingram notes, you're an elitist who spent his entire career working for the Ford Foundation, the New York Times, or Hollywood studio. Concepts like valor, bravery, and sacrifice are probably alien to you. You don't take them seriously. You don't know anyone who does. You naturally think that anyone who does profess to live by them must be mentally defective or even evil. Just like on the conservative side, we think that people who take seriously diversity, equity, and inclusion are insane. All right, back to Richard and Anya talking with Amy Wax. 80s. I don't know like how much we were thinking about air traffic controllers. You know, it seems, it seems like it goes through ways. It seems like the government jobs come first. Um, it seems that that was like that's the first. That's just a you know a racial right. uh, 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 distributed system, um, just a direct stuff at the local level. And then the federal government comes later, and then sort of the private uh, sector comes later. Do, do you think? Uh, what do you think about sort of the? You know, is, is there is, is there a sort of just a, I think on the right is is the resistance to genetics? Well, first of all, do you think do you think it's crumbling a little bit? Because I think your average smart young conservative. Um, They've come across. They've grown up with the internet. Uh, you don't just have to read National Review or whatever. So they've come across HBD. Um, they're not. You know, they've read this stuff often. Um, my experience, and, and I'm talking to a highly selected group, and maybe maybe you have a different experience here. My, you know, my impression is that you know, young smart conservatives understand this stuff. Um, is that your impression or, or not? I, you know, we live in a very rarefied world because the young smart conservatives, who are you know overwhelmingly male, by the way, 
who are aware of this stuff. They're a very rarefied group. <laughs> just, yeah, just, just throw that in there for That's true. <laughs> though. I'm sorry to have to say it, right? Women really resist this. Um, when I talk to students, well, in my university, which is an Ivy League university, the ones who want to learn from me, the ones who take my class, you know, they're not necessarily conservatives, but they le- they want to know about conservatism. They are curious. Uh, they have gotten red pilled to some extent. Um, they lean right. Uh, and when I talk to them about this, which I, I don't do very much, I mean, it's really only one or one and a half sessions of my year long course where we talk about this stuff. Um, boy, they are, first of all, they know nothing about it. Okay. They have, they are the product of our indoctrinating K through 12 and elite college system. And they can go through that entire system, you know, 16 years. And the idea that there might be even behavioral differences, that's the first step. Okay, they literally don't know that there are crime rate differences or they think this is just some kind of right-wing conspiracy theory. They have no idea what the out-of-wedlock birth rate is for blacks. If you ask them, they're off by like several orders of men. Right. In in the 1960s, the Boynihan report, it was appalled that uh, the out-of-wedlock birth rate for, for blacks was something like 28%. And now the, the white out-of-wedlock birth rate is 40% or higher. It's now about 75% among Black Americans. All right. Do you guys remember Julia Allison? So she was a big deal in the online world. I'm reading about her in Taylor Lorenz's new book. So she was a junior at Georgetown University in 2002. She started a dating column in the school newspaper called Sex on the Hilltop. This is a time when Sex in the City was one of the hottest shows on TV. And her column became a campus sensation. And, uh, she started getting bylines at national outlets like Cosmopolitan and Seventeen. Film producer Aaron Spelling even optioned her life rights. And uh, one day she saw Tom Wolfe on a book tour. And everywhere he went, he appeared in the same iconic white suit. He's a brand, she realized. I've got to become known and become a brand. So she built, built her own brand you know, in large part around her looks and her breasts and her sexuality. And so she tried to leverage her sexuality to rise to the top. And then there was quite a large amount of pushback to that. So nearly every article documenting her rise contained a disturbing level of misogynistic language and tropes. Tech journalists who were overwhelmingly men implied that Allison was promiscuous. They used highly gendered language to slut shame her and to question her credibility. She was of trying to sleep with the powerful men in tech. Fast Company ran a piece titled, Sometimes Breasts Aren't Enough, Julia Allison. So why did she receive so much bad publicity? Because she was trying to leverage her sexuality and her looks to get ahead. So by 2012, she decided she couldn't handle any more online assaults. I was exhausted. And she set out to erase herself from the internet. She lives a quieter life now. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts with her fiancé, She's been accepted into a master's program at Harvard's Kennedy School in Leadership and Public Policy. But uh, no introspection displayed in this book about how she may well have contributed to her own problems. All right. Uh, When we try to push our way up in the world, all right, we will be very likely to step on the toes of others and they will retaliate. So the best way to avoid this kind of blowback is to develop a mindset that you want to be helpful to other people, that you want to be of service to others, that you're not just out for yourself. And people sense that when you're eager to help other people, right? And they're much less likely to want to take revenge on you 
as opposed to when you're using your breasts and your sexuality and your good looks to try to aggrandize yourself. Right. That's, that's not a winning formula. Magnitude. Okay. When you tell them it's more than 70%, they are shocked and amazed and incredulous. What, what do they think the white rate I, is? I, I, I would think they're they have, a bubble overall. They don't know. Okay. They're yeah, just, they no study idea. race, 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 inequality, sociology up the wazoo, but they're yeah. never exposed yeah. to this stuff. Right. And the idea that there might be even IQ differences that are measurable. I had one very sincere, very intelligent student say to me, do you really believe all this IQ stuff? Like, do you really believe that there are these differences? And do you believe that they have any significance? So what can I say to him? I said, well, do you think that some people are smarter than other people? I mean, let's start with the basics here. We have to really start with the basics here, right? The whole idea that some people are smarter than other people is one that uh, they're having aversion to, even though their everyday common sense experience is telling them that. There's also a huge amount of cognitive dissonance because, you know, your day-to-day experience exposes you to the fact that there are stupid people and smart people. But in school, that idea is not just absent, but discredited. So, you know, apart from this tiny, tiny faction of sophisticated right-wing guys who are curious about HBD, I honestly wonder how many people are even aware of this stuff. I honestly do. Yeah, I think I think you might have yeah convinced me because you're getting a better, more representative sample of young smart people than I am. I'm not teaching students who happen to go to a university. I'm just on the internet, and people are finding me, and people who find me are unusual. And it sounds like you're talking to people at you know Penn. Yeah, yeah. It, it sounds very. It doesn't sound very hopeful. That, that sounds. That and sounds this terrible. is the elite. I mean, you know, you it, the guys yeah. I know who are outside the education system, they either never entered it, you know, professionally, or they have avoided it. Think about the people who think about this stuff and talk about this. Okay, Elliot Blatt, what's going on, bro? Hey, bro, can you hear me? Yes, beautiful, beautiful. Looking good, bro. Uh, I'm out for a walk, man. You want to, uh, you want a little tour of the, uh, you want to see the walk here? Who cares? You know, Luke, I, I think the connection is not going to be sufficient, but, uh, so if I'm breaking up, uh, feel free to tell me. Yeah, the audio quality is really bad, so maybe kill the video yeah. and let's see if that improves the audio oh, quality. Oh, oh. Uh, how's this? Is this any better? Uh, it's terrible. Why don't you come back in and let's see if... See well, if I, I, I'll come back another time. I, 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 I thought it was worth a shot, but uh, I didn't have anything terribly pressing, but <clears throat> this is always the problem with a kinetic stream. I'll oh. call in later. Okay, call, okay? call in later. Okay, call in later. Oh. Or did you have like one question or point that you no, wanted no, to... No, 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 it was just kind of chit-chat, so it wasn't terribly important. Okay, so um, tr- it, was more like a, it was like a test. It was more of a test to see if it was possible than anything else. Uh, try, right, try, try coming back in and let's let's see what it's like. All right, perfect. Okay, blessings. Let's see if we can get Elliot back on the better connection. Stuff we debated, right? Coffness. Well, Coffness actually is now, ironically, at Cambridge University. Um, Bo Weingard, uh, this guy Warren Warney Warnke, who's written a book about intelligence. Uh, the people, you know, most of the people who are on the internet debating HBD, they're not in the academy. Emil Kierkegaard, there's another example for you, right? Uh, the people in the, the academy, the whole world of formal schooling is the world that these young people are going to come up through and what they're indoctrinated with through their schooling is what you're going to have to cope with. I mean, this is actually the broader challenge of wokeness in general, right? Which is very much the subject of your book. Okay, uh, Elliot, uh, let's, you let's try you again. All right, thank you. Is this any better? No, it's horrible. My God, it's the worst I've ever okay. heard. What are you doing? Yeah, something I'm, different? I'm, I'm out in the sticks. I'm out in the sticks. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not walking in nature. So, 
it's just me connect to where I am. It's not ever been with. Okay, let, let's have a day, bro. Try, try another time. Okay, bro. Okay, sorry, bro. Okay, we tried. Kids who come up through this propaganda uh, machine, uh, how can you move them away from these woke attitudes? I know you recently wrote about how you think Jews are going to become more conservative and Republican. I mean, boy, from your mouth to God's ear, I don't think it's going to happen because these kids are being churned through our school system, our education system, right? And they, wow, it takes a tremendous amount of independence of mind uh, and kind of skepticism and almost rebelliousness to resist that. Though I wonder how much, I mean, how much of the school, you have the school system, but you also have the internet. And I just think that maybe the average person is just maybe not reading the news on the internet, but young people are getting all their news from social media. Twitter is now basically a free for all. You know, I, the race and IQ stuff is interesting because 10 years ago, before they really started messing with the Google results, you Google race and IQ, you get Richard Lynn in the maps. Yeah. Google used to be a really good source for information, but it's just become increasingly woke uh, the last, what, eight years? Plenia says, I find HBD people really disgusting. Losers always cry about their best winners go home and caught the, the prom queen. Yeah, press press F for Blatt. I don't know. That was the worst audio quality I've ever heard from Elliot Blatt. And I was so looking forward to his insight. So I just uh, finished reading a book by Edward J. Epstein. It's his autobiography. Edward J. Epstein died recently. This book's called Assume Nothing, Encounters with Assassins, Spies, Presidents, and Would-Be Masters of the Universe. So Edward J. Epstein was doing a master's degree, I think, at, at Cornell, and he was looking for a topic, and he arrived on campus the same day that John F. Kennedy was shot, and so his political science professor, why don't you examine the organizational workings of the Warren Commission into Kennedy's assassination? And so with a letter of recommendation from his political science professor, he got to interview all the members of the Warren Commission, except the Chief Justice Earl Warren. And he had his, his master's thesis turned into a book. So he was incredibly successful from, from a young age. And in the course of researching his book on the Warren Commission, he interviewed Gerald Ford. And it was from Gerald Ford that he first heard the term political truth. Right? That's where you fit the, the facts to political realities. All right, you take what's true and then you compromise it to fit political realities, political truth. And uh, the Warren Commission was uh, reluctant to rely on the FBI for its investigation. And one lawyer said, uh, J. Edgar Hoover likes to close doors. I told oh, Warren we had to reopen them. So... Uh, the author here, Edward J. Epstein, interviewed many of the attorneys who worked on the Warren Commission. And uh, one answered by describing the famous Thornton Wilder novel, The Bridge of San Luis Rey, in which investigation uncovers a whole series of unrelated sexual liaisons. And he compares the book to the Warren Commission, says, We uncovered a lot of minor scandals, but they were not relevant to our investigation. We decided not to publish them. But what kind of scandals? Well, he says, It was as if someone picked up a rock and light caused all bugs to run for cover. He said, The Secret Service needed to obscure the indiscretions of its agents the nights before the assassination. So many of the agents were quite drunk and hung over by the time of the assassination. The FBI had to expunge all sorts of embarrassing incidents from its reports. The CIA had to hide many of its illegal activities. 
Even the Attorney General, Robert Kennedy, put his own man on the staff to deal with inappropriate revelations. Robert Kennedy, the Attorney General, he saw to it that the members of the Warren Commission would not get any access to the color photos of John F. Kennedy's autopsy. So no one on the Warren Commission had any doubts that Lee Harvey Oswald was the shooter in the sniper's nest, but the real mystery was why Oswald was there with a rifle. Had Oswald been trained in espionage in Russia, was Oswald a sleeper agent who went haywire? Okay, one attorney ridiculed the seven commissioners of the Warren Commission, calling them the seven dwarfs. They refused to question the claims of Oswald's Russian wife, Marina, who was Snow White. Said Dopey was Chief Justice Warren, who dismissed any testimony that impugned Marina's credibility. Who was sleepy? That was Alan Dulles, the former director of the Central Intelligence Agency, CIA. Right, he frequently fell asleep during the testimony of witnesses, and when he was awakened, he would ask inappropriate questions. McCloy was grumpy. He was constantly angry when staff lawyers did not pay sufficient attention to his theories about possible foreign involvement. And uh, this attorney was scathing about the initial FBI investigation. He quoted a joke. said one of his theories was that Lee Harvey Oswald might have been brainwashed into serving as a Manchurian candidate assassin. He said the FBI had no basis for this ridiculous theory. Uh, Alan Spector came up with a single bullet theory that it was a single bullet that went through John F. Kennedy's throat and then hit uh, Governor Connolly. And Alan Spector says, I showed the commission there's a Pruder film frame by frame. I explained that they could either accept my single bullet theory or they could begin looking for a second assassin. Did you examine the color autopsy photos? Nope. Never saw the autopsy photos. Did anyone on the commission see them? Nope. Anyone on the staff see them? Nope. Why not? Because uh, Robert Kennedy hid them. Right. So the Warren Commission did not conduct exactly an exhaustive investigation. It did not even examine the basic autopsy evidence of how the president was killed. So he develops uh, something of a friendship with Jesus Angleton, the former head of counter-espionage at the CIA. And Angleton talked about this female firefly. He says the female firefly uses a Morse code of flashes to signal her availability to males. Of course, one can't be sure it's a firefly. Then he explained the assassination beetle, which was the firefly's natural predator, and it had learned over time to replicate this code of flashes. So the firefly responds to this mating call, and instead of finding a mate, he is devoured by a beetle. So the assassination beetle provokes the firefly into flying into the fatal trap. So Angleton was very uh, obsessed with the whole world of counter-espionage. Then uh, Edward J. Epstein in the late 60s went back to, went to Harvard to get his PhD in political science. There he met a professor, Edward Benfield, who had the idea, an intellectual is someone who can see controversial issues in shades of gray, as opposed to a man of action, including politicians who see them in black and white. And if you want to be primarily a person of action, it really helps to see things in black and white because that sort of clarity is uh, much more energizing. Edward J. Banfield says, I learned that collaborative projects such as movie making were not for me. My ambitions were ego-driven. I needed to find things that were less entangling. So I decided to move forward with my writing career. So when I moved to Los Angeles, I initially went on a lot of auditions. I tried, tried to become an actor. 
and I was taking regular classes at an improv. And eventually, after about three months, they kicked me out of the improv school. And the people who ran the school said, look, you're, you're much more suited for solo activities like writer or stand-up comic. So uh, Graham Allison, who wrote the book The Thucydides Trap about uh, the U.S. conflict with China. In the 1960s, early 70s, Graham Allison introduced Edward J. Epstein to diplomacy, the board game in which seven players are assigned seven countries in pre-World War I Europe and then make strategic decisions. There can only be one winner. Alliances are necessary to win, and the rules permit players to lie, cheat, and deceive each other. And some people were quite at ease with that, but other people formed resentments that lasted decades. It's like, do you remember playing Risk? started playing risk in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And inevitably, you know, someone would have to attack me to try to win the game. And I remember we'd all get sore for hours or even days from, from playing risk. So Edward J. Epstein taught at both Harvard and MIT. And he said the Harvard students were socially transactional. Right, they had no hesitation attempting to negotiate a better grade on their papers. On the other hand, MIT students right, accepted their grades as the fate they deserved. They showed little interest in social interaction or negotiation. He became friendly with Pat Moynihan, who eventually became a United States uh, U.S. senator from New York. And he noted that uh, depending on the role that Pat Moynihan was serving, he would take on very different ideologies, right? Pat Moynihan was a chameleon, like most politicians, most people in public life. He would constantly adapt his views to coincide with his own position. He was a political animal. So when he joined the Nixon administration, there was a concern that drugs and street crime were linked. So he suggested to Nixon that the link theory could be tested by temporarily disrupting the supply of foreign drugs into the United States didn't realize that Nixon's staff would expand his idea into the war on drugs. And he says, I was as surprised as anyone when they turned my suggestion into the war on heroin. Uh, Tom Wolfe, one of my favorite journalists and novelists, said that a memoir to be true would have to describe the writer's most painful humiliations, as Jean-Jacques Rousseau did in his Confessions. But that's not easy because our brain is not wired to relive painful moments. And to test Wolfe's proposition, I later tried to recount one, but as he predicted, it was too traumatic. So our brain just tends to shut off our most painful moments. It's very, very difficult to relive them. So in uh, 2008, Edward J. Epstein recalls receiving an email from Katie Rossman, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, asking about an exchange he had with her and Barack Obama in 2003 when Obama was still serving in the Illinois Senate. And uh, Edward J. Epstein had no recollection of that evening. But after he talked to enough people, it turned out he did have this long, lengthy discussion with Barack Obama in 2003. And Katie Rossman was so impressed by the discussion that she pitched the New York Times on doing a profile on Barack Obama. But it was rejected on the grounds that a story about an unknown Chicago politician did not belong in the New York Times. This is 2003. Then 2004, Barack Obama gives that big speech at the Democratic Convention and moves to the national stage. 
Uh, Edward J. Epstein wrote a book that was influential on me in the early 80s when I finally read it, but the book came out in 1976. It was called News from Nowhere, and he looked at how network TV news was made. So this is a product made by an organization. So at one level, a newspaper, you know, a news person can choose to prepare individual stories, and the organization can choose the news person, but only those who are able to adapt to the network are retained and promoted, right? Those unable to accept working within the group and working within the network's values get weeded out and shunted aside. So it's primarily the organization, not individuals, that determines the pictures of society represented on national TV. So to the New York Times, New York Times is very much an editor's newspaper. It's very top-down, right? not a lot of investigative journalism. The editors decide what's important, and then the reporters have to live up to those directives. So this story from 1973 is particularly prescient to today. Uh, Edward J. Epstein started writing for The New Yorker in the 1960s. Around 1973, New Yorker's editor, William Sean, gave him a story to investigate the allegations of a conspiracy by the Nixon administration to genocide the entire leadership of the Black Panthers, who were a group of black militants opposing government oppression of blacks. And so at this time, the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, other newspapers reported as fact that the police had killed 28 black panthers. So was this part of a pattern of genocide? And Edward J. Epstein went out and investigated, and all, all the deaths were essentially accountable for by normal you know, law enforcement reactions. There were four questionable deaths. All of them were done by local, not federal police. So not one of these 28 deaths was the, the product of federal law enforcement. So these false numbers about the federal government had deliberately murdered 28 Panthers were just false numbers bandied about in our most prestigious news media and uh, completely unrelated to what was true. Right? The, the news media just swallowed the story and then promoted a conspiracy theory that was completely bogus about uh, government genocide. Then, uh, interesting story here about Steve Bannon. So in 2018, uh, Jeffrey Epstein sought help from one of his close friends, Steve Bannon. Right? Jeffrey Epstein befriended Steve Bannon after Trump fired Bannon in 2017. And he sought Steve Bannon's help in restoring his public image. And Steve Bannon suggested that Jeffrey Epstein should go public by giving an exclusive interview on CBS 60 Minutes. And Bannon then became his media coach and schooled him on how to take control of a TV interview. Never, never actually came off. But uh, striking that Steve, Steve Bannon would, would be so close to Jeffrey Epstein. Right away. Um, around 2015, I think 2016, they start messing with it. And now you, you used to be able to go to Wikipedia and just get a straightforward presentation of race and IQ. You can't do that anymore. So they really went, but at the same time, Elon Musk buys Twitter, people can basically say whatever they want on, on these topics. Um, and so, yeah, it's very interesting. I think young people wouldn't even believe you know, that someone like Arthur Jensen could be a professor at Berkeley, um, you know, 30 years ago, right? Like one of the most, I just want to sort of tell young people like who are listening that like 30 years ago, there was a professor at Berkeley who would testify before Congress, who was one of the most famous psychologists, uh, well-known academic psychologists in the country who argued that the black white IQ gap was genetic. I think that just, and Hernstein was, you know, was at uh, Harvard too before he died. Well, I don't think Hernstein Amazing. ever really came down definitively one way or the other on nature versus nurture, but I no. think you're making a like very good point. You make an right. excellent point that, yeah, I say they're, they are controlled by the school system and you're saying, wow, like, no, there's the internet. I mean, the internet 
can't be controlled by these institutions. So why aren't they getting this kind of counterweight of, you know, other opinion from the internet? Well, well, they try. I mean, Google, I just met the Google results. And what I find, and, you know, I can't explain it entirely, is that these kids almost immunize themselves from even looking at this stuff on the internet. There's there's almost a kind of anti-inquisitive, anti-curiosity ethos that you just don't go there. Interesting. I, I call it this kind of PC zapper. These kids have this fence around their brain where, you know, if anything that's un-PC even approaches their brain, they zap it until it's dead. I, I say to them, you know, five minutes of snooping around on the internet and you'll find all this IQ stuff, all this HPD yeah. stuff, it's all there. You know, take a look at it. But it's almost they, yeah. like they won't even take a look at it, you know, because they've been told so many times yeah. that it's evil, that, you know, it's right wing, that it's white supremacist, uh, that it's made up. They shouldn't go near it. Um, that that's the only way I can account for their ignorance. Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, there is this makes sort of sense from a, uh, you know, this makes sense from a sort of human psychology perspective. Right. People are judging arguments based on their prestige rather uh, than their merits. Right. So a low prestige argument that is only found on the Internet, but your Ivy League university won't tell you about it. Right. That is a sign that this is an argument you stay away from. I remember I had this one student when I was teaching at UCLA who was very smart and he would, um, you know, he would curiously talk to me about politics or whatever. And whenever I would recommend he would read something on whatever topic, he often wouldn't, wouldn't read it. But if I ever mentioned anything that was in The New York Times, like he had read it already or he would go and he'd read it. Right. And he was just very familiar. It, most people are not like sort of this, like a uh, uh, sort of. Uh, so I remember I was in therapy around 2015 and my therapist had this telling observation that I, I've never forgotten. He said, uh, I wonder if you're so radical in your politics because you're so passive in your life. He was pushing me. Why, why wasn't I out going out there trying to seek a, a better job? And I'd always have an excuse for why I didn't want to go out there and look for, for a better job. And finally, I got into a 12-step program that dealt with problems like under-earning and debting, and that gave me the energy and the enthusiasm, the drive, the clarity, the inspiration, the, the group, the, the personal connections that inspired me to go out and get a, a better job. But I uh, wonder if you're so radical in your politics because you're so passive in your life. And I notice this with many of the more radical people that I speak to online, right? In their politics, they are hard men. In real life, they seem to be pretty soft. So I've noticed that the more successful I become, right, the less interested I am in anything radical. I, the more I thrive within the system, less interested I am in overthrowing the system. So when I look at radical movements, I notice they rarely contain happy, successful people. Rather, it seems like marginalized movements attract marginalized people. And crazy conspiracy theories, for example, are most attractive to people who are losing at life while those who are winning, meaning that they're thriving in their work or their family lives, might really believe in things like QAnon. Now, I don't mean literal conspiracy theories. Obviously, 9-11 was a conspiracy theory by Al-Qaeda. I mean conspiracy theory, not in the denotative sense, but conspiracy theory in the sense that it's generally understood, connotative sense, right, as some nefarious conspiracy that is denied by polite society right so if you if you know someone who's really into glenn beck or someone who's really into alex jones or really into fox news right, you can be pretty sure that you're not talking to a winner at life right these are outlets that primarily appeal to people who aren't exactly thriving so i just read a 2014 book by a couple of academics called american conspiracy theories and here's its thesis. Conspiracy theories are essentially alarm systems and coping mechanisms to help deal with foreign threat and domestic power centers. 
Right? They tend to resonate when groups are suffering from loss, weakness, and disunity. I just read a great quote from Robin Dunbar in his book, Friends, that loneliness is an alarm system, that something's really wrong with your life, and unless you do something about it, very likely to have a quite short and unhappy life. So nothing fails like success. So ascending groups, all right, uh, tend not to buy into conspiracy theory, all right, because defeat and exclusion are their biggest inducements. Conspiracy theories are for losers. Now, everyone must play the loser, but we still get to choose whether or not we buy into a conspiracy theory. So here's a quote from George Cannon, the godfather of America's containment policy against the Soviet Union. He says, there seems to be a curious American tendency to search at all times for a single external center of evil to which all our trouble can be attributed, other than to recognize that there might be multiple sources of resistance to our purposes and undertakings, and that these sources might be relatively independent of each other. So the magic key becomes increasingly compelling the more you lose at life. So if your group is falling in the social pecking order, right? Sharing a conspiracy theory is a way to close ranks, to staunch your losses, to overcome collective action problems, and to deal with vulnerability, right? So groups who are losing at life will usually find comfort in conspiracy theories, right? You'll get this unifying narrative of a terrifying enemy, and communicating these conspiracy theories will heighten your alertness to avert tragedy, and you'll find someone to blame for your problems. You'll find an opportunity to channel your anger and to avoid internecine recriminations, right? And to have hope of some ultimate redemption. On the other hand, victory is a lax disciplinarian, right? The more you win at life, the more likely you are to become lax, right? Large winning groups feel less anxiety. They feel more agency in their life. They feel like they're more in control and they have less need for conspiracy theories. But as losses accumulate, right, conspiracy talk is the most likely to issue from those who fail at life. So we all find living with failure, living with power, asymmetry, more uncomfortable as time goes on. So 9-11 truth of the theories only begin to strongly resonate, not immediately after 9-11, but in the beginning of Bush's second term. One thing that's curious about radical conspiratorial writings is that they are only a more intense version of mundane political discourse. So regular politicians highlight problems, advocate solutions, call for concerted action. Conspiracy theorists highlight an abysmal state of affairs. They advocate titanic policies. They call for concerted action right now. Third parties and political movements that are losing have much more need for conspiratorial rhetoric than do major parties because the losers, right, the consummate losers, those who never win, experience a great deal of discomfort, right? If you're achieving your goals, if you're overcoming your rivals, right, you have much less need for conspiracy theories. But the more you lose at life, the more tempting conspiracy theories become. So how do you spot winners and how do you spot losers? So I did a Google search on this. Here are some of the things I found that resonated with me. 
Plus, Amy Wax and Richard Hunanya. Uh, obvious, the extent to which they're sort of prestige driven. I think people just have this to some degree. If it's in the New York Times, if it's some, you know, some major newspaper, then they'll take it seriously. Those of us who just will go to the internet and find whatever idea you know, seems to best explain the fact patterns and the data that we see in the world, that's just rare. So yeah, you're making a good case for sort of a, it has to come, it has to come from the top down. It has to be kind of, we have to make these ideas prestigious somehow, which I guess is one reason you can't, we had this debate last time, you can't just throw away the university. <laughs> you need something, something has to have prestige. Yeah, right? and otherwise they're um, self-policing. And the word prestige, yes, absolutely. It has a lot to do with prestige. But in the current era, prestige has become moralized. See, that's part of what woke has accomplished is it has um, moralized these ideas or demoralized them so that they're either good or evil. And it's contaminating somehow to even go near them. It's a genuine taboo. And I am continually fascinated by the outsized influence of the New York Times, which is just, you know, such a propaganda rag, so totally dishonest, you know, so full of falsehoods and half-truths. And yet uh, there are a very significant number of incredibly influential people who, you know, uh, whatever the New York Times says, that's the truth. That's what they believe. Um, Okay, a question from the chat. Luke, what would you say to a room full of young male Jewish professionals on the topic of fighting anti-Semitism? Okay, if they're Jewish, I would note that there's nothing in Judaism that says we need to fight anti-Semitism, right? There are far more important things to, to do in life. So you know, get, on, get on with your life, right? Fighting anti-Semitism is a, is a, a made-up moral mission for those who are insecure in their Jewish identity, right? If you're already practicing Judaism, you already have a fulf- fulfilling life, you don't have to make up some mock heroic mission like uh, fighting anti-Semitism, just like uh, human rights, right? Human rights as a major popular concern only emerged in the 1970s, and it only emerged among people who'd become disillusioned with left-wing politics, right? When they saw that uh, various types of socialism weren't really transforming the world for the good, when they'd become disillusioned with, with, with politics, they looked for a new way to feel heroic. And so even though fighting for human rights doesn't actually make any positive difference in the world, it feels good. It feels heroic. It feels important. Now, prior to the 1970s, human rights was properly understood as only something that occurs within a particular nation state. All right, only a particular nation state can confer and protect rights. But uh, human rights as it's now known, has become a project since the 1970s. And Americans and and Brits and Australians have this delusional idea that they can effectively fight for human rights in Africa or elsewhere in the world. And you can't, right? There's only one effective vehicle for developing human rights, and that is the nation state. And the rights that a nation state can afford you will vary depending upon its circumstances and the the nature of its population. Uh, Another thing I would say that the stronger your in-group identity, right, the stronger your Jewish identity, the more you'll be blind to behaviors and language used by Jews that engenders a negative reaction. So I would certainly not want somebody to live a life without the pleasures, joys, strength, energy, excitement, that comes from a strong in-group identity, but you need to simultaneously step outside of that in-group identity at times and consider how your words and how your actions will be perceived by those who are not in your group. So that's a way that you can be both in your in-group identity and successfully navigate the wider world by taking into consideration 
the effect of your words or how your words would be perceived or how your your deeds would be judged by those who are indifferent to your group. I guess I would also say that uh, different groups have different gifts and often different agendas, that uh, resources are finite, but human desires are infinite. Ergo, individuals and groups will frequently be at odds and the more intense the conflict over resources and power, right, the more likely it is to turn violent. I would say that trying to promote a stronger American relationship with the Jewish state of Israel is not really in America's interest or in Israel's interest. And it is only creating a, a whirlwind of opposition to Jews if we keep pushing for, for America to bail out Israel. And that's the source of, of all their knowledge. The New York Times is still incredibly powerful. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's that's right. Um, you know, among conservatives, do, do you see sort of you know with the recent you know recent sort of what's going on in politics? We talk about you know racial differences and wokeness. What's really influencing politics recently is abortion, um, and it just I think really since Dobbs, it sort of really brought home to me how much people like me and you are in a coalition with, with these theocrats basically um, who are you know doing you know who are um, losing elections. And I just find this amazing horseshoe where they're you know they just they use the same arguments as the left. They talk about you know uh, they talk about you know anyone who's pro life or pro choice or who believes in you know surrogacy or IVF is a eugenicist we're the you know we're the people who are the true egalitarians we believe uh, you know everyone's equal and everyone has worth do you do you see sort of how do you think about sort of the influence of sort of this christian right sort of um you know this sort of philosophy on the right and how it like you know it reinforces sort of the leftist resistance to uh, uh to, to genetics and you know bi race realism all this well, stuff yeah, absolutely i think that the right falls into the trap of borrowing the playbook of the left and the language of the left and the paradigms of the left Absolutely. Um, they do it when they talk about emotional harm and upset and trauma. I mean, the whole anti-Semitism debate is, you know, straight out of the playbook of the left. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. You have to understand that there is a very, very strong strain of egalitarianism in Christianity, right? I mean, a lot of these ideas come out of uh, Christian belief. Um, and so, you know, it's in the air that if you that if you tout equality and promote equality, you're a good person, you're a pious person. Um, and only evil people defend hierarchy and inequality. So it's very tempting for the right to uh, borrow those yeah. concepts and that language. So I did some research to put together a blog post on what uh, what distinguishes uh, winners from losers. All right, uh, chat says, appreciate your answer on fighting anti-Semitism. Look, our young rabbi found some anti-Semitic posters in his neighborhood, asked us uh, what we thought. So if your rabbi and congregation are orthodox, then fighting anti-Semitism is just not part of the Torah tradition, right? There's nothing in the Torah tradition that says we need to go out there and fight anti-Semitism, right? That's overwhelmingly a preoccupation of Jews who aren't observant. If you're observant, right, if you're leading a traditional Jewish life, if you're studying Torah, you don't have time or interest to go out there and fight anti-Semitism unless you found some you know, lucrative niche, right? So the, the smartest rabbis, Generally speaking, don't engage in Kiruv. Kiruv is, you know, outreach to non-religious Jews and try to bring them closer to the path of Torah. But for less intelligent rabbis, right, this is a way of making a living. So just doing Kiruv, doing outreach or fighting anti-Semitism or teaching the lessons of the Holocaust, right, these are all grifts for not, not terribly intelligent uh, Jewish professionals who wants to you know want to make make a living? So this rabbi is a chabadnik, 
but the group ranges from the non-observant to somewhat observant. So even Orthodox rabbis, again, look for ways to connect with their congregation. And so fighting anti-Semitism, even though this is not traditionally a part of how traditional Jews think, right? There's no Torah tradition, halakhic tradition in fighting anti-Semitism. Uh, rabbis will want to make a connection with their congregation. And so whether it's talking about baseball or talking about, you know, Tony Robbins or talking about, you know, something from the contemporary world, if, if uh, fighting anti-Semitism becomes a topic that they think will, will resonate with their congregation, then rabbis will do that. Like rabbis will learn to appreciate soccer or baseball or, you know, whatever's in the news or culture, if it will help them connect with their congregation, in particular with the wealthiest donors in their congregation. So you got a Chabad rabbi who's trying to develop a congregation. He needs donors. And if donors are particularly fighting in, interested in fighting anti-Semitism, right, if, if, that's, if that's what will raise money, then the, the rabbi will be sorely tempted to step outside of the Torah tradition and try to tackle this contemporary concern. Okay, I was trying to think about what distinguishes winners from losers. And uh, one thing I've noticed is that uh, winners tend to be quite fussy. Right? You have to be fussy to be excellent. Right? We, we spend most of our time with people who are slow to learn, not terribly motivated to learn. We have to repeat ourselves over and over. We have to explain things over and over just so that they will get it. Right? A winner is someone who comes in bright-eyed, full of energy, asks questions, you give them a few answers, and after the races they go. So good employees learn fast. Winners learn fast. Uh, losers come up with excuses. Right, uh, winners can't imagine doing something in a half-hearted, haphazard way. Uh, winning is focusing on what's important. Right, it might mean you need to leave work early to take care of your family, and you don't worry what your coworkers will think. So, winning is largely about the people with whom you surround yourself. Yeah, winners don't hang out with losers. Milkett says, "I am a winner. You are a loser." Okay, you're. You're also <laughs> an ex-member of this show. Right? I, I don't put up with abuse, so you're gone. When I get around to it. So uh, remember Trump's description of Jeb Bush as low energy and how devastating that was? Because a large part of Donald Trump's success stems from the energy and excitement that he creates. Right? He is a, a pretty fun guy. Like People who like Donald Trump, personally like Donald Trump. They think he like, is a fun guy, someone that they want to hang out with. And uh, part of that is just the energy that, that uh, he, he puts out there. And so I was just listening to a New York Times uh, pollster talking about uh, the appeal of uh, Donald Trump. Uh, this is this is relevant here. I think that this is a party that is a little bit divided about whether it ought to be oriented around a man or oriented around some bigger set of ideas. In the lead up to the 2020 election, Republicans were very much, we are 
the Trump party. They really saw their identity through the lens of, I'm a supporter of Donald Trump. And very shortly after that election, you had January 6th, and suddenly there really was a bit of a break away from that. It has rebounded since, but I think it's very valuable to note that his opposition has not really taken a bite out of him. You had in the Republican primary, Chris Christie making the sort of forceful case against Donald Trump, but he did not find that there was a huge market for a candidate whose primary message was Donald Trump is unfit to serve. So he hasn't really had anybody with a ton of credibility with the Republican base taking serious shots at him. I think that we look too much at the supply in politics, like what candidates are supplying and not enough at the demand. And it seems to me the reason you didn't have more credible Republicans taking a bigger bite out of Donald Trump is that as people wanted to win an election, they knew it wasn't a good idea, right? I mean, people try different things every time. Okay, that's uh, Ezra Klein there interviewing the Republican pollster on Donald Trump's undiminished appeal. All right, here are, here are traits I associate with losers. They tend to be passive. They tend to be listless. They tend to be boring and bored. They tend to cultivate victimhood and conspiracy theories, and they tend to be isolated. So this is Robin Dunbar in his 2021 book, Friends, quote, loneliness is an evolutionary alarm signal that something is wrong. It is a prompt that you need to do something about your life and fast. Even just the perception of being socially isolated can be enough to disrupt your physiology with adverse consequences for your immune system, as well as your psychological well-being that, if unchecked, lead to a downward spiral and early death. I love it. Great summary. Loneliness is an evolutionary alarm system. All right, traits that I associate with losers. I feel bad when I'm around them, right? Good people make you feel good. Bad people make you feel bad. There's a frantic quality to losers. They tend to be vague. Well, winners know, right, how much time they have, what their resources are, right? Uh, losers engage in idea deflection. They can't hear new ideas. Losers love drama. They have a compulsive need to prove things to others. They cling to useless possessions. They give away their time. They fixate on their hurts. There's a discordant note to them. They tend to be takers rather than givers. They take long hits of copium. They say things like, please clap, and they wear medals to work. Right Here are traits that I associate with winners. They have energy, drive, passion, clarity. They are positive. They have friends. They are busy. I feel good when I'm around them. There's an underlying calm. They have an admirable way of life. They engage in tracking, so winners track their time and their finances if necessary, their food, their exercise. They are open to new ideas. They have purpose. They have clarity and clear priorities. They quickly separate themselves from those who are bad for them. So I just had someone come into the chat and start abusing me. So boom, I blocked him because I'm not going to be a loser. But, uh, winners welcome feedback, and they quickly discard that which is not helpful. There's a congruence to the life of winners. Winners rarely need to announce their boundaries. They're so formidable. You'd never even consider abusing them. And winners tend to be more givers than takers. So on Sunday, my favorite football team, the Dallas Cowboys, was absolutely destroyed in the wildcard round of the NFL playoffs by the Green Bay Packers, all right, 48-32. Now, once my favorite team went down 27-0, I just started laughing about it to my friends, right, when you can... Be amused by the life outside of your control rather than devastated by it. All right, that's a winning approach. Right? If, if you cry when your team loses, uh, for most people, that does not embody a winning approach. Yeah, a winner overwhelmingly spends time with other winners. People feel most engaged when performing tasks that stretch them to the limits of their ability and energy is infectious. Winners don't look for excuses. The priority must always be the priority. If something is important enough, it will take precedence. 
If it's not important enough, it will take a back seat. When a winner finds another winner, they want to be around them more. As the old proverb goes, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Wasting time means wasting energy. Knowing what to invest your time in is the key to maximizing time. He is not spending time, but investing it, investing your time in the right people, the right processes and purposes. And feedback is the breakfast of champions. Winners welcome feedback and know how to distinguish the feedback that is useful from that which is abusive. Winners get in the game. Winners ask for what they want. Winners understand their strengths and weaknesses. They understand their sphere of influence. They leverage the strengths of other people. They invest their time and their energy in the things that excite them. Winners show up, if important, even when they don't feel like it. And winners keep their actions congruent with their goals. A winner, right, when he's building a project, right, counts the project's cost to the last penny, right? Winning in life is a cumulative series of successive wins. And for every win, there are distinctive prices to be paid. And a friend says, the single biggest thing is if a person is forward thinking and planning, working toward action, towards some future goal, or are they just living in the past? So. I've long defined happiness as simply looking forward to the day ahead. People get older, they might naturally spend less time planning and more time reminiscing. Well, if you can look back with ease and joy and gratitude and forgiveness, that strikes me as winning. If you primarily look back with bitterness and rage, that strikes me as losing. We all will constantly lose at life. We'll lose jobs, friends, community status, opportunities. We will all go through Bitterness and anger and depression after significant loss, but winners get through this phase more quickly and adaptively than losers. So adaptive depression means you grieve what you lost. You notice where you might have gone wrong. You work on developing an understanding of your your character defects that have created these problems. You get clarity on how these character defects have served you, like what needs in you are being met through these character defects how they have cost you, and how you'd be better served by the opposite of these character defects. So, for example, I have often suffered from a lack of consideration for myself and for other people. And realizing how much this has cost me, right, has incentivized me to lead a more considerate life. And then after you've worked through various scenarios for how you wish to go forward in life, after you've considered your plans for the future after an appropriate time, retreating from life, you then push forward with plans that will likely advance your interests. So maladaptive depression is the opposite. It means you just get stuck in depression. And denial means denying the significance of your losses and just pushing forward with gritted teeth without taking the time to learn or to grieve. So depression and anger and bitterness and rage, these are all adaptive responses at times. We never graduate from being human. We never stop cycling through feelings of competence, dependence, loneliness, grandiosity, and humiliation. Right? We never graduate from these feelings. But I notice winners build healthy connections, strong connections with others. Losers try to manipulate their way through life. Winning employee makes his employer's priorities his priorities, while a loser employee ignores his employee's employer's mission in favor of his own proclivities. A winning friend is open to assisting his friends achieve their healthy goals, while a loser doesn't want his friends to excel him. So winners get good things done, while losers mope and complain and blame. All right back to... Public impulsor on Trump's undimmed appeal. I'm Haley or DeSantis tipped up to more frontal attacks on Trump. It didn't move their numbers. It didn't, they didn't get a reaction from that, from the crowd, in the polls, from the donors, whatever, right? These are sensitive politicians that said there was appetite for it. And I think that's my question, right? Why didn't Republicans want something like that? I think there's a, a feeling, maybe a hope, 
that people had that Republicans were looking for an alternative. And maybe they're open to an alternative. But what, what I think is clear here is they weren't looking for one. The analogy that I have used to describe this is think about somebody who has a favorite comfort food dish that they order at the restaurant down the street from their house. Let's say it's meatloaf, something that they know not everybody loves, but it's the thing that they like and it makes them feel comfortable. And they know if they go down to that diner and they order that meatloaf that they're going to like what they get. They know it's maybe not good for them. They know it's not for everybody. And so now the server comes along and says, well, hey, we've actually got an interesting special or two today. Do you want to hear the specials? I think it's the case that you had more than half of Republicans say, I'm open to hearing the specials. But at the end of the day, they really wanted meatloaf. They're hungry. They want to know what they're getting. And they feel like with Donald Trump, they know what they're getting, the good and the bad. They don't think he's perfect. But they have decided that the bad is worth it for the good they would get from him. And as a result, without sort of coming to the conclusion that, hey, maybe I should stop eating meatloaf because I might have a heart attack, there just wasn't really an interest in trying something new and different. Okay, that's Republican pollster on Trump's undimmed appeal. That won't do it for me. Take care. Bye-bye.